On the record. On News Talk. With Penergy. Supplying energy with insight to forward thinking Irish businesses. A hundred years ago this weekend, three armed men lured a young Irishman from his home in County Galway and days later his body was found in a bog. He had been shot through the head. His name was Michael Griffin. He was 28 years old. But with an introduction like that you'd be forgiven for thinking that he might have had something to do with the War of Independence. Maybe he was an an IRA gunman. He wasn't. He was a Catholic priest. And the fact that a priest had been killed in such strange circumstances made it all the way to the front of the New York Times and it's a centenary which has been commemorated this weekend in the West. And Donald Fallon, as you might expect, is here to tell us all about it. Uh, Donald, good afternoon. This is uh, one of the more peculiar stories in the whole timeline of the decade of centenaries that we're going through. It is, and it, it has the air of mystery around it. You know, on the, the night of the 14th of November, 1920, three men in, in trench coats, of course, they're in trench coats, uh, arrived at the home of, of, of Father Michael Griffin, Montpellier Terrace uh, in Galway. And Father Griffin is kind of led away uh, by these men and, and not seen alive again. And who they were, you know, why they took him away was, and you know, kind of somewhat remains, to be honest, the subject of, of significant mystery uh, and controversy. But I think it's worth saying in this kind of decade of centenaries that we're living through now, you know, most of the people that we we commemorate and we're talking about these days, they made a distinct choice in their lives. You know, people like Terence McSweeney, uh, Tomas McCartan, Kevin Barry. Mm. I mean, they were people who who volunteered themselves to to a revolutionary army and everything that came with that, every risk that came with that. But the anniversaries that are coming up now, there's a certain darkness to them. You know, November 1920. I mean, in, in, in just a couple of weeks, you know, we'll have Bloody Sunday, the centenary of, of that. And the yeah. GAA, mm-hmm. in fairness to the GAA, they've really gone for it. They've kind of, they've devoted a lot of time to marking that anniversary in, in whatever way the current restrictions will allow. In fact, there's a banner across the hill, you know, yeah. Bloody Sunday, a mm-hmm. whole range of great digital content, podcasts, videos, everything. But by comparison, this kind of curious death of, of, of Father Michael Griffin, one of the great mysteries of the time, it, it's a more muted affair. But believe me, a century ago, I mean, everyone can name uh, you know, perhaps Michael Hogan, but most of the spectators who died in Croke Park faded into a kind of obscurity. By comparison, uh, this was an enormous news story. Yeah, and it's actually, by the way, some of the, the other uh, people who fell victim on Bloody Sunday, there's a very good exhibit even online right now at GAA.ie. If you just scroll down and then scroll, scroll through all the stuff there, they've put together an awful lot of content and some very nice reenactments of the life stories of some of those who died. Uh, but, but particularly about Father Michael Griffin, though, and as you rightly mentioned, at the time, because of the circumstances and because this wasn't a guy who had actively taken up arms or been an, an active rebel, this was an enormous international story. Oh, the like there, there's there's pillars of the community and in the Ireland of 1920 there's a pillar of the community and that is you know the local priest mm. and the disappearance of a priest to be discovered dead a week later in a bogland that is a sensational story I mean it's condemned from the pulpit in Rome in New York in Melbourne it's the front page story uh, of of the New York Times and it's probably difficult for us now at the remove of a century to imagine the kind of shocking impact of a disappeared priest you know mm. on on the Irish on the Irish psyche. But he was born in Gertine, son of a Land League veteran, ordained in Minute 1917. And remarkable guy, very young, 28 years of age, you know, at the time he disappears. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gael Gore, member of the Gaelic League. I would call him a kind of small-end nationalist, if that makes sense, and, and, and deeply popular uh, locally. You know, someone who'd served with distinction during the, the so-called Spanish flu, uh, the mm-hmm. influenza. But his politics were kind of quiet. I mean, basically everyone in Ireland was a nationalist. <laughs> the, the elections had, had proven that. Mm-hmm, yeah. But there were varying degrees of, of nationalists. And he was, I would call him a small-end nationalist, supportive of the revolutionary forces, but not himself actively involved. Yeah, but, not... you know, still, nonetheless, 
a pillar of community. Yeah, maybe not someone who was using his pulpit to, quite literally to, to rabble rouse or to try and, and harbour support for it. He was just a sort of a, a supporter on the sidelines, if you like. Um, tell us about how Galway was in 1920. It was something of a worsening situation at the time. Galway, I suppose like most of the country, was, was changing. Back in 1916, there'd been some fighting in Galway and, and the people hadn't really rallied to the rebels. And one of the rebels described Galway in 1916 as the most Shonian town in Ireland. <laughs> not, not something they, they tell you on, on, on the walking tours of Galway City. <laughs> no, I'm sure they don't. But the, mo- the most Shonian town of Ireland, you know, by, by 1920 was a place of kind of increasing tension. And this had happened all across the island of Ireland. You know, places that were quite sleepy four years earlier were now really in the midst of, of a revolution. So we think of Connacht in the West, you know, by comparison to Munster as, as quiet. But there's still, there's 11 large-scale reprisals in the province, you know, in the summer and autumn of 1920. There's, there's violence in Connacht and especially uh, in Galway. And in Galway, the blame seems to be, you know, a, a lot of the time on the shoulders of, of the Ogsies, the local police. The bishop condemns the persistent shooting and flinging of grenades in the city and for miles around. Every night since curfew began, the systematic campaign of house burning, destruction of property, eviction of families, dragging of people from their beds at revolver point, violence against women and girls, and I don't know what other forms uh, of terrorism. I mean, that's the, the word of the bishop. It's, it's you know, by the grim. winter months of 1920, Galway is a city, like, like, like so much of Ireland, that's pretty much on, on knife edge. And it doesn't take much you know, to, to spark something in a place like Galway. Yeah, no, it, it's definitely a very grim uh, sort of world that you've outlined in that little description there. But but at the same time, you know, at, at some levels, maybe there's a logic to it and perhaps the, maybe you might get to explaining the logic, but I suppose a lot of people would just have been baffled. In the middle of all of this, why abduct a priest? Yeah, why, like, why abduct a priest in, in, in the Galway of 1920? On one level, I think, you know, it was perhaps an intended act of revenge. Uh, back in the summer of 1998, I said 1998 there, the body of, of a school teacher called Patrick Joyce was, was discovered in a, a shallow grave at Barna in, in Galway. Now, Joyce had gone missing in 1920. <laughs> His body wow. shows up then in the late, the late 90s. And he was suspected of being an informer in, in, in 1920. And at the time, generally what happened was, you know, if an informer was, was killed, their body was left somewhere very, very prominent on the street mm. with a kind of warning card, you know, attached informers beware IRA. But the school teacher, Joyce, in 1920, many people suspected he was passing information onto the Ogsies and he just kind of vanished into thin air. So there's a real tension uh, in Galway. And one of the arguments has it that, you know, the abduction of this kind of nationalist priest might have been revenge, if you will, for, for this school teacher, Joyce, going missing. But when, when you have a reprisal in your village, generally speaking, the Ogsies at hands, they go for the same things every time. You know, they attack the, the GAA clubhouse. Yeah, they yeah. attack the... Irish Trade, Transport General Workers Union, the Trade Union Hall. But, you know, a priest is just regarded as, as untouchable. So there's something about this that's really, really shocking. In, in an Ireland that doesn't think it can be shocked anymore. And, you know, Griffin had administered, Griffin, he'd administered the last rites to a couple of Republicans. He, he'd taken part in the funerals of Republicans. But that was really, really about it. And on one level, when you think about it, I mean, a, a priest, they're above touch, you would think. But on closer inspection, what does a priest know about a community? Well, probably in the 1920s, he knows everything about the community, everything. doesn't he? Exactly. A, you know, a priest knows more about a community than anyone. He is the one who hears the confession of a community, you know, its deepest and darkest secrets. He's the one that IRA men, gunmen who the Crown Forces want, they're going to him, they're telling him exactly what they've what they've done. So I think that's probably why Griffin was abducted, you know, with the latter in mind, that he okay. could be a, a source of great information. But what happens to him is a, is a mystery. He's taken to a place called Lenaboy Castle, then occupied by the auxiliaries. Nothing is really heard. And then six days later, 
uh, the body shows up in Bogland. And obviously he's very lucky and those who belong to him very fortunate that it didn't take until 1998 for his remains to be discovered as they were for Patrick Joyce. But then uh, tell me then about the inquest because I'd imagine at the time if there was such a thing as a proper Irish judicial system or a coroner system that would have been quite a, a heavy uh, amount of scrutiny in all of this but maybe not the case in 1920. What's really odd about, about this time is that the man who's in charge of the Oxies is a guy called Frank Percy Crozier, and he, he later becomes a, a very committed pacifist, which is like a strange, <laughs> strange journey to go on from being the head of the Oxies to being this, this <laughs> yeah. great pacifist. And man. But yeah. he runs for the Labour Party in an election in, in, in the UK, and he pens a whole series of books about the madness uh, of the war uh, in Ireland. And, and uh, he writes about this inquest uh, as a whitewash. You know, He says, I found out the military inquiry into the murder a father Griffin was fast in a frame up and that a verdict of murder against persons unknown uh, would result. But the way he writes about this is shocking. You know, he says, I received further evidence that the hidden hand was still at work and was told in confidence that instructions had been received to kill the Bishop of Killaloo by drowning him in a sack from the bridge over the River Shannon so as to risk no further risk of detection by having his body found. So, I mean, he reveals this kind of, you know, this, this deep reaching conspiracy, yeah. if you will, to remove not only Father Griffin, but other figures from the church who are regarded as something of a, of a threat by, by Crown forces. Yeah. The entire thing is a total whitewash. Yeah. Someone murdered Father Griffin. We don't know who did it. Next. But it's amazing then that the, how systematic it was that they, they said, right, OK, the priest is one thing, but then we want to get to the local bishop next. I mean, th- this is a time, I know it's 1920 and the world is still in a lot of tumult, but a century on, that's the sort of thing. It, I mean, it's literally a war crime. It'd be like contrary to the Vienna Convention. And yet in 1920, that was considered sort of fair game, which is maybe why in, in the UK, and as often tended to be the case, and as we've discussed many times in this slot in the last few months, when news of all of this makes it as far as Westminster, there's a real sense of shock and anger about what's going on. And they don't talk about Ireland too much in Westminster because remember the vast majority of Irish seats were held by a party who didn't go there. Yeah, you know, Sinn Féin yeah. had just dominated the 1918 general election and then you had more than 70 Irish MPs who didn't sit in the, in, in the House of Commons. Mm. But you had Joe Devlin, a home ruler from Belfast, known as, as we, we Joe Devlin, and he pushes and pushes the whole time on what's happening uh, in Ireland. And in the other corner is Hammer Greenwood, Sir Hammer Greenwood. He's the man, we quoted this a few weeks ago, he said, there's no such thing as a policy of reprisals in Ireland, but if there is, it's working. And there's this kind of nasty Dear exchange dear. across the floor between Greenwood, this kind of arch, self-described imperialist, and, and this kind of West Belfast MP. But Greenwood plays this great trick where he, he tries to turn it on the on the mad Galwegians, you know, that this was some kind of act of internal violence. And he says, Father Griffin was an extreme Sinn Féiner, which is a lie. And he and Mr. Joyce, a national school teacher who was also kidnapped some time ago, were rival protagonists. And it's feared that Joyce had a number of priests who were determined to avenge him. A number of so number of priests. You know, he makes this sound like this is yeah. some kind of a number of priests. That is like some sort of mafia turf war. Yeah, absolutely extraordinary. But you know, even the most conservative sections of the British press, the Spectator, you know, the Daily Mail, all of them were kind of uncomfortable with this because you know whatever about the Sinn Feiners. Father Griffin, as they've seen it, just was not was not fair game. And often, you know, conservative voices in Britain kind of advocated, you might say, killing Sinn Féin with kindness, you know, win the mm. hearts and minds of people. And they understood that, you know, abducting priests was not going to do that. Um, if it's not too unfortunate a, a phrase to use, the west of Ireland and Galway in particular must have been a bit of a powder keg at the time. How, how were things over there in the aftermath of all of this? Absolutely. And the church kind of urges restraint. And, and the, in the eulogy, you know, the priest tells them Catholics will be horrified everywhere at this tragedy. But I would console uh, restraint. So, I mean, Ireland at the time is just spiraling out of control. Sectarianism in the north, especially like you basically have pogroms on the streets of Belfast 
to a lesser extent, Derry. Mm. So, I mean, you don't want to see that kind of sectarian response happening in, in, in the west of Ireland. But I think what's astonishing in Galway is that it created real unease in the community and whispers, you know, of people's involvement, some of which would span decades. And you'd still hear great stories about this case if you, if you ask the right people in, in Galway. William Joyce, who's kind of known Lord in human history as, as Lord Lord Ha Ha, yeah. Germany calling, Germany calling. You know, local lore had it that he was a, a youthful informer for the Tans and the Oxys who'd been aware of the abduction of, of Father Griffin. So, you know, for so many decades after this story played out, kind of gossip about it and stories about it spread. And I think this time remains such a mystery in Galway because the, 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 the body of Joyce wasn't discovered until until the 1990s. So I think there was there was reasons that this remained a great, a great mystery. And like priests are often killed in, 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 in war situations, you know, mm. they're gunned down in a hail of bullets, you know, or administering the last rites to people dying on the streets. But this is different. This is a premeditated decision to take this guy from his home and to then and to then dump his body afterwards. So from Westminster, you know, to the New York Times, it was a deeply, deeply shocking story. But within weeks you dead spectators on, on the terrace of Croke Park, Cork City, you know, burnt to the ground. Uh, as well, this would in time be kind of so, somewhat forgotten even then. Mm. Uh, he is not completely forgotten, though. There are still some uh, honorees in his name in, in County Galway. It's a lovely plaque uh, outside the home from from which he was abducted, and Father Michael Griffin Road in Galway is, na- is named in his honour. And to be honest, you know, even the centenary, I hope there'll be more and more answers on this. But I think just parts of the story we'll never really know the full the full truth on. But it's nice that like this is the recurring closing line of this segment in, in recent times. It is so nice that people are trying to mark the anniversary in Galway in, in whatever way they can at this moment. Yeah, and at least they can. And maybe perhaps when, when times are slightly nicer, they might get an opportunity to, to revisit the Centurini in a way that gets to include more people. Uh, the, the abduction and death of Father Michael Griffin from Montpellier Terrace in Galway 100 years and one day ago this weekend. Donald Fallon, thank you for talking us through that. Donald Fallon is a historian. He is the author of The Community Me Books and he's the presenter of the Three Castles Burning podcast, which you'll find anywhere you get your audio on the good old interwebs.